Please open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Titus. Please open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Titus. If I could get some help in the sound booth, it appears the PowerPoint is not working. Please open your Bibles and find your way to the book of Titus. Titus is an ancient letter that is written by the historic apostle Paul. And he has written this letter to his partner in crime, or rather colleague in Christ, named Titus. Uh, they are co-workers, the Apostle Paul and Titus. They're working together, and they're, they're working together specifically in the ministry of the gospel. The gospel being that word that we use to describe the good news of Jesus. And they're working together in the ministry of sharing that gospel, sharing that good news. Mind you, they're not just running around and telling people the good news of Jesus. That Yes, they're doing that, but they're, they're planting churches. Because we have been called by Jesus as his followers, not just to share the good news, but also to make disciples. And discipleship happens in the context of the church. And so, so they're, they're running around as partners in crime or colleagues in Christ, Paul and Titus, planting churches, sharing the good news of Jesus. And, 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 and they're training up the next generation of leaders who will, who will carry on that message and that work of planting churches around the ancient world. They were highly successful in this, and of course that success isn't to be attributed to the work of their hands, not by our might, not by our power, but by the power of the Spirit. The message would go forth and people's lives would be changed and churches would be planted. And so this letter that you have comes from a section inside of the Bible known as the pastoral epistles section. Epistle is just a word, of course, that means letter. And so there are these letters that are written that are pastoral, that were, that were written by uh, leaders in the church to the next generation of leaders or, or the guys who were training the next generation of, of leaders, hence they're known as the pastoral epistles. This is for you guys to help you to lead. You see, because as they're spreading the message, as they're planting churches, people are coming into those churches. And those churches spread into Africa. Those churches spread into the Middle East. They spread into Asia, subsequently they spread into Europe. They spread across cultures, across ethnicities. They crossed uh, socio-cultural and ethnic boundaries, and, 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 and they're going out there. And as they're going out there, people are coming into these churches. Their lives are being changed, and, and you have people from Africa and Asia and the Middle East and Europe, and you have old and you have young and you have slaves and you have free and you have poor and you have rich and you have people who are coming from Jewish backgrounds, people coming from Greek backgrounds and Roman backgrounds, people coming from different religions, and they're coming in and their lives are being changed. Now, as they come in, they don't leave their context. I mean, what they were saved from, they're going to carry certain baggage from that. If you came out of some crazy pagan cult or whatever, you you know, get saved and come to the church, you're, you're going to probably have some messed up ideas and maybe some bad habits and what have you. And, and, and if you're coming from a sort of rich upper class, you know, you come into the church, you might look down on people and treat them in ways that are ungodly and so on and so forth. And so these letters, the pastoral epistles, are written to those leaders to help them navigate that. They're discouraged. The leaders are discouraged. People are divided. There's darkness that creeps in. And these letters are written to say to them, here, let me encourage you in the face of discouragement. Here, let me bring you truth that, 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 that helps you to understand divides and to see who's who and what's what and what's going on. Here, let me answer some questions that you have. We see from these letters that there were correspondences that are going back and forth. And so, so these guys, guys like Titus, are asking questions. What do I do about this? What do I do with so-and-so? What do I do with such and such? There are people who are saying this about God or, 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 or this about this section of the Hebrew Bible. You know, what, what's the truth of the matter? And so we have these great letters from the first century that are dealing with these contexts of like what, how the church is to live, how the church is to thrive. The Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited, anticipated one had come. And, and, and he moved from Israel to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and the, the church is going out. And so all sorts of cultures and people groups are coming in, and that raises new questions. The next generation asks questions that the generation before didn't ask, and so these letters help us to understand that. Incidentally, outside of the New Testament, we have the writings of the, of the apostles' disciples. And the, and the disciples of the disciples. We continue to have this genre of letter writing from the ancient church, and we get to see what folks were dealing with. So as you've 
open to Titus, that gives you just some context so that you understand you know, what kind of genre we're dealing with. It's a letter and what's kind of behind it. It's, a, it's an OG, the Apostle Paul, who's trying to help this, you know, Titus, who, who's a co-laborer with him, understand and give him some encouragement, give him some truth, give him some instruction, answer some questions, so as to help to, to lead the church. And one of the things that we see inside of the letter that is, uh, is a concern, it is for the holiness of the church, for the purity of the church, for the cleanliness of the church, and that brings me to the title of today's message. I have titled today's message, Cleanliness and Godliness. So by way of introduction, I've oriented you to the text so that you can understand where we are this morning when we read the text. You've got a little bit of context. It's important always to have that. And by way of introduction, let me introduce uh, the theme of the text from Titus that we'll be reading this morning. It is a theme of godliness, a theme of cleanliness. Now, there is actually a, a saying or an idiom in our culture, cleanliness is next to godliness. Have you heard that? Uh, as a kid, I heard that, and often it was when my room was messy. <laughs> you know, clean your room. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, you know, and I'm like, where, where is that in the Bible? It's right next to God helps those who help themselves. And lots of idioms that people have that they think are in the Bible. You know, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, you, you know me. I like to dig and get into history and try to figure things out. And so... Uh, I, I, as I titled the sermon, Cleanliness and Godliness, I thought, you know, I want to do some research. I'm really curious where this saying came from. It's not entirely clear, but I was able to trace it back to the 1700s to a preacher, John Wesley. And, and, and in fact, I was, I was able to unearth the actual sermon it came from. It was a, a 1791 sermon that he had titled his sermon on dress. I'll put it in front of you and highlight uh, this section that it comes from. He, he writes, let it be clear or let it be observed, rather, excuse me, let it be observed that slovenness is no part of religion, that neither this nor any text of Scripture condemns neatness of apparel. Certainly, it is a duty, not a sin. Cleanliness is, indeed, next to godliness. Now, uh, Wesley isn't on a hygiene kick here or whatever, or he's not, you know, uh, uh, you know, the parents barking at the kids to clean their rooms or whatever, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness, or hey, you know, wash your ears or comb your hair or whatever. That, that, that's not what is going on here. He was talking to believers about how they carry themselves in the world because people watch you as, as a Christian. You know, when you say you're Christian, people are going to scrutinize you a little more. And so, so he seems to be getting at, as I, I look at the sermon, uh, he seems to really be getting at, in this section of the sermon in particular, the classism of his day. In particular, the rich who were sort of wearing their money which there's nothing wrong with having nice clothes or anything like that. That's not what he's getting at. But they were wearing their money in such a way, costly clothing, and putting it on in such a way so as to put down other people. There was an arrogance in it. There was a pride in it. And they were using that to push down the poor. And that was an era of, 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 of American culture in which, and British culture as well, where you had a great deal of classism, there wasn't much of a middle class, and so there's a lot of disparity. And, and this pastor, John Wesley, he's getting at this, and he's saying, look, like, cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, you take care of your stuff, and you don't flaunt it in front of other people, okay? Now, it, it's worth noting, of course, that the Bible doesn't say, and my kids are sitting here right now, so I know they're going to use this against me, but the Bible doesn't say don't have a messy room, uh, but it does say obey your parents, so take that. Um, <laughs> It doesn't say that having dirt on your clothes is, you know, sinful. Look at you, you got a little coffee there, you sinner, or whatever. The Bible isn't concerned about what's on the outside. It's concerned about what's on the inside. You know, so if my kid's room is messy because they're memorizing the catechism, well, all right. You know, but it, it's messy because they're playing Fortnite. I, I mean, come on, let's get it together, kids. So anyway, uh, it's hard being a pastor's kid and sitting inside. Anyway, and they got masks on, so I can't even see their faces. But anyway, right, the point that I want to get at isn't to be distracted by trying to chase down where this saying comes from or how this idiom is used in our culture. I'm just using it to kind of tease out here by way of introduction a theme of cleanliness, a concept of cleanliness, and how the word godliness and cleanliness is associated, not in this idiom, but how it's associated in the Bible, and specifically in the text of Titus. And so by way of introduction, now let's move. I've kind of teased out some themes. I've given you context to this particular epistle or letter. Let's move from introduction into the inspired imagery. 
We're looking into the inspired text of Scripture, and, and I'm going to take you into this section from Titus chapter 2, verse 11, through Titus chapter 3, verse 7. I'm going to give you this pericope, this chunk. We're just going to read it in one sweep. And as we read it, pick up on the theme of godliness and pick up on, on, on the concept of cleanliness or washing or purity. Those images, that nomenclature, that wording is going to be used. We're going we're gonna to see godliness and we're going to see cleanliness in the text. Without further ado, let's read the sacred text. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and, and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, I want to highlight here from the text of the inspired word of God, this language of washing, this language of purity, the instructions in this pericope, this section with regard to godliness. There are lots of commands and appeals to godliness. And woven in there, you see this, this language, this imagery of washing and purity, cleansing. Now, I, I want to let the text just kind of sit here for a moment and let the imagery and the wording of the text, just let it sit on your lap and let's just soak in it Let's bathe in, pun intended, the concept of cleansing. Let's just soak in it. Think about cleansing. Think about washing. Think with me of what it feels like to be dirty. Right? When you, when you feel dirty. You've been outside, you've been working or whatever, or you went to the gym or whatever, you've been running errands or whatever, or, you know, in this, in this uh, uh, pandemic climate, you know, if you've gotten on an airplane, recently flew and I just, you know, I got off that plane and just, I don't know, I felt like I'm covered in COVID. You know, I just felt dirty. Like I want to get home. I want to scrub off. I want to, I want to wash off. I, I, this, you just, you, you have that feeling of being dirty. You know, you kind of smell, but you know, it doesn't, you know, you, you smell, you, man, I, I want to wash up. Uh, my kids recently uh, went to Yosemite uh, with her grandpa and, and, and my wife, their mom, and, and you know, they, they were there for the week, you know, and there's not showers, <laughs> and they came back in the house, and, you know, you just, you just smell, you just smell it, you know, there's like, and they're all, you know, what do they all want to do? All seven of them want to get to the bathroom at the same time. I called it first. I called it first. I want to wash. I, I don't like this feeling of feeling dirty. Think about feeling dirty. Think about the feeling that you have after having a fresh shower or a warm bath or a cool bath or whatever, after that feeling of dirty. Isn't it so refreshing? Think of the feeling, uh, you, know, you know, when your hands are dirty or whatever and you want to eat and you kind of, you know, and so you wash your hands or whatever and it just feels nice to have your hands clean when you're eating a sandwich or sushi or whatever that, that you're using your hands. You want it to feel clean. Think, think of maybe there's not time to shower or whatever. You just go to the sink and you splash some water in there and you just wash your hands and you wash your face or maybe get a hand towel and you, you wash your face. And, you know, even though you can't wash the rest, it just feels so good, doesn't it? Uh, for those of you who are uh, wonderfully bald like me, the feeling of that clean shave. I, I like to reserve it for Sunday mornings in particular, so I just come to church feeling uh, just particularly awesome because there's just not, it feels so good to just shave and have that nice shave. It, it feels wonderful to wash, to feel clean. 
to, to take off your sandals or take off your shoes and your socks and just soak your feet for a bit and then towel them off and just, just feel clean. In our public reading of Scripture this morning, we read from the Gospel of John in the 13th chapter where Jesus did just that. In a, in, a, in a culture, a Harachi culture, where everyone's got their toes hanging out and it's dirt everywhere and people's feet smelled wild in the first century of Jerusalem, you got to believe that. And Jesus gets down and dirty and he washes their feet. They feel awkward about it, as we saw inside of the text. But Jesus was doing something beyond being practical. I don't need all your stinky feet up in this house smelling it up. Something practical to wash their feet. He was doing something pedagogical. That is to say, pedagogy is teaching. He's teaching them something. And he tells them, what I'm doing is a symbol of something else. If, if I can't wash your feet, you have no part in me, not, not, not because it's about the feet in the water, but because it's a picture of something that he was actually doing. In fact, in the face of the kingdom of darkness, we read in the text of John 13, the devil was in the room. And what does Jesus do? He washes them and teaches them about washing. And here we have the text of Titus in front of us, and we have this language of the washing of regeneration, this language of pure and being purified. To purify is to, to cleanse. These images are important for us to understand so that we don't just move through the text and we don't let the image hit us, the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus with vivid imagery that we desperately need to grasp. Let me tell you three things about the imagery of cleansing or washing, three things about what they teach us if you're taking notes. In fact, I'm going to tell you three things about it, but I'm only going to give you two right now. I'm going to save the third for a little bit later. The first thing that washing serves pedagogically in teaching us is, number one, about sin. Sin is like being dirty. That existential feeling that we get when we feel dirty of like, oh, I want to shower. It's a, a powerful parallel to our lives before a holy God. We're, we're, we're dirty. You have that feeling of, oh, I'm dirty. I, I, I don't like the way this feels. I need to be washed. Sin is like dirt inside of the revelation of God's word. Indeed, existentially fitting for we don't like the feeling of being covered in said dirt. So three things I said, I'm going to give you two now, save the third for later. The first is that sin is like being dirty. The second is that salvation is like washing. These are images, metaphors, pictures, washing, cleansing. Sin is like dirt, number one. Second, salvation is like washing. Jesus has, chapter 2 of Titus, verse 14, purified his people, we read. Titus speaks not just of the work of Jesus in washing of people for himself, but also of the Spirit in Titus 3, 5, with that language of washing us. Indeed, we worship a God who is Son and Spirit. We worship a God who is Son and Spirit and Father, one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The work of salvation is a work of the triune God, these three persons. The Father sends the Son. The Son comes to, to wash us by His blood, which we'll talk about. And the Spirit comes to apply that work. Together, they redeem, behold, the triune God. And so that's the theological context for us of this triune God who washes sinners, who, who, who stand dirty before Him, but He graciously offers to to wash them, to do that to them. That's the theological context of salvation and this triune God and this gift of washing that he gives to us. And here's the textual context of this pastor writing to a co-laborer of people who are discouraged and going through stuff. And, and he's reminding them in the text as we saw, hey, 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 look, hey, look, you once were foolish, you once were disobedient, you once were deceived, you once, you know, in the world, you were living this way, and now you've come into the church, and, and some of that baggage is coming in, but let me remind you about what God has done in Christ to redeem you. Just hang on for a second, and let's, let's, get, this, let's get the picture of washing in front of us. And for the Jewish community, we, we need to understand that in talking about washing, they weren't thinking of the things that I described. Stinky kids coming back from Yosemite, the stubble on your head that you shave in a, you know, on a Sunday morning, 
uh, taking a cold bath or whatever. That, those weren't the images that came to mind. When you start talking about washing, purifying, cleansing in the first century in this culture with Jewish Paul writing to Titus in a Jewish community who's wrestling with all these issues of what do we do with Gentiles? What do we do with ethnic conflict? What do we do with class conflict? What do we do with these pagan religions? What do we do with people not getting along? What do we, what, 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 what do we, now he brings up this image of washing and for their context and where they stood, this immediately brought up not the images of your bathroom, not the images of, of whatever, a nice hotel with a bigger bath than you got at home or whatever, not the images of a spa, you know, not, 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 the, not the images of getting off the COVID plane and, you know, just Lysoling yourself down, but, but the image that would come to mind for Titus would be the image of the temple and the priesthood. In that Jewish context, it would bring up the idea of sacrifice, of ritual purification. We, we're, we're a culture right now because of COVID and everything where everyone's washing their hands like a bunch and there's sanitizer everywhere. And so when you talk about cleansing or washing, like our audience might think of hand sanitizer or something. No, no, no. Don't think about that. By way of introduction, I'm kind of teasing that out to sort of, you know, hopefully stir some existential things in your mind and go, oh, yeah, I do like to be clean or whatever. Okay, now let's take that to the temple. In the providence of God last Sunday, I actually offered a sermon from the book of Hebrews where we actually looked at the temple. In fact, on, on the PowerPoint from last week, I, I showed you this slide, this picture of Herod's temple. In the days of Jesus, the temple of Herod. This would be the temple that, that Paul, that Titus knew of and experienced and had been inside of. You start talking this talk about purifying and washing, this is immediately what comes to mind. Not just the structure of the temple, but also the priesthood, because the priests were the ones who mediated between that which is clean, that which is unclean, that which is holy, that which is unholy, between God and man. And that was the work of the priests, as we saw in our study last week, and the temple is, is picturing this. Here's, here's the temple. The temple serves just like the ritual of washing. It serves pedagogically to teach something. As I said, it teaches us about sin being like dirt, salvation being like washing. Okay, the temple serves pedagogically in a very similar manner. It's, it's teaching. It's, it's giving us a picture. You can't see it on, on this picture. Those of you who came with me on the, on the Israel trip, you know that on top of this picture that we're looking at, or rather underneath it, it's sitting on top of a big mountain. And as you come up the mountain, there are all these steps that are carved into the mountain. And on the outsides around the temple, you have what's known as mikvaot, as the, the plural of mikvah, that we translate over in the Greek New Testament, uh, as, uh, and it gets translated over into English as baptism, or baptismal pools. Out, outside of the temple here, as you come up to it, it's, it's surrounded by these pools. And so that as you approach the temple, as you've journeyed to the temple, you're, you're dirty, and so you get inside of these pools and you, you wash yourself up. You immerse yourself. You wash yourself in the water. There's steps that go down on one side, steps that go up on the other side, so that no one butts heads because this is the dirty line, this is the clean line as you come up out of the water. And so people are immersing themselves in the mikvaot, the baptismal pools, and they're getting washed. They're getting washed, and they're going up. This is why in the ministry of John the baptizer that we meet inside of the New Testament, as he's baptizing people inside of the River Jordan, people aren't scratching their heads and going, what is he doing? They knew what baptism was because it's a culture of washing for ceremony, for ritual, for teaching the people. We stand dirty before God. The temple is the house of God. This is where the God of Israel, where Yahweh dwells. And so if you want to go to the house of God, and you're commanded to go and come and worship, you must wash yourself before you get there in the mikvah. And so outside of the temple, you have people covered in water. People are just drenched in water because they've been in the pools. Outside of the temple, people are covered in water. Inside of the temple, there are people covered in blood, the priests. So there's a picture of water and there's a picture of blood. Sacrifice, sacrifice, okay, and the ceremony of cleansing. Now, now, notice, notice that the Holy of Holies, the house of the Lord, 
there's, there's distance from it. There's all these barriers and chambers and walls and borders, and it's on top of a mountain, and there's water out here. There's a distance between everyone and this right here. There's blockades. There's distance. You're not supposed to just run up in there because the one who dwells in the house of the Lord, the Lord is holy. He's pure. He's clean. And we're not. We can't just run up in there. Right? Any more than if you've gotten dressed or whatever to go out somewhere nice and your little three-year-old who's covered in dirt is like, give me a hug before you go. No. <laughs> you know, like, I'm clean. You can't, don't do that to me. I just got ready to go. Don't get me dirty. The one in there is clean. And so there's a process of approaching that area. And that is teaching you that there's a distance between that which is holy and that which is unholy. There's a distance between the sacred and the profane. It's teaching you about this distance, and it's, it's, it's reminding you of, this of those who are covered in water and those who are covered in blood. And that blood is a picture of the wages of our sin, the dirty part. We've sinned against the one who has given us life. And as a result of that, the punishment that fits that crime is the taking back of life. And how is life, how is life lost? You don't have blood in your body, you're dead. Blood is a picture of death. Blood is a picture of being unclean. Blood is a picture of dirt inside of the scripture. Okay, it's, it's the antithesis. There must be a washing for the offering of the sacrifice. The blood is poured out and you're seeing life ebbing out there inside of the temple, outside of the Holy of Holies. And so you're being taught there's a distance between the sacred and the profane and that distance will be gapped by water and blood. It is a, a reminder to the original audience who are steeped inside of these scriptures at the very beginning of the story of the people of Israel, where you read about Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, is in the book of Genesis, which starts not with Abraham, but it starts with Adam, so that we know that the God of Israel is the God of creation. And in the book of Genesis, God creates Adam, and he creates Eve, and he places our parents inside of a perfect paradise, Inside of the paradise, there is the tree of life. There's no death in there. There's no dying in there. There's the tree of life. There's the river of the water of life. There's water that's life. There's a tree that is life. There's life. God tells them, God tells them to stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in so doing, death would come. Life and death were not to touch. They were not to touch. That was not to come to them. But of course, we know how the story goes. They don't listen to God. They rebel against God, the giver of life. And so now they touch. Life is met with death. And God, in his grace, he graciously covers them. We read of an animal that loses his life, and he covers them with the flesh of an animal. And there we see blood on the ground. And then, and then God stations these these flaming cherubim, these, these fiery angels outside of the garden, and he exiles humanity from the garden. He places them on the outside. The place of life, where the tree of life is, now life and death have touched. You have to go outside of this. O outside, outside of this. What do we have outside of this? We, 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 we have these angels, and, and you can't come back in this, and now you're exiled, and you go from paradise to wilderness. Again, it's a picture of distance. The temple is picturing Eden. It is picturing the place where God dwelled with man and humanity, and now there is distance. Now there is distance. Adam and Eve could not come back in. They're, they're placed out, and out there, outside of paradise, there there's death, there there's dirt, there there's blood, there there's rebellion. In Eden, there is the living God, the living God. He's the God of the living, repeatedly inside of the Hebrew Bible. The God of the living, the God of the living, the God of the living. And of course, that's in contrast in the ancient world to the pagan gods. The pagan gods would actually die. They would die. The gods of the pagan world, they have, they're polytheistic cultures. They got gods for every you know, day of the, of the year. They got all kinds of gods, and the pagan gods would die. They weren't the gods of the living, they're gods of the dead. They're, the pagan gods would die. The pagan gods would come back to life. They'd resurrect. Now, you, now, a skeptic might hear me say that, and then 
might say, oh, but isn't that what you Christians believe? Don't you believe in Jesus God? Doesn't he die? Doesn't he come back to life? Well, you know, you guys just copied that from the pagans. Hear the skeptics say. And if there's any skeptics wondering that, I will answer that question in just a moment. But for now, I'm going to stay on point, and I'll come back to that. Pagan gods die. The God of Israel is the God of the living, because the God of Israel is the God of creation, who is the giver of life. So he's the God of the living. He has life intrinsic. Uh, God doesn't have to charge. He doesn't have to plug in on the USB port or anything. He has life within himself. He's intrinsic life. As the creator, he gives life. And those who rebel against that, then life is taken back. And life and death that were not to touch, touch. And now you're outside of the garden, the place of life. In the temple, the garden mysteriously returns as a porthole from the heavens to the earth, where paradise and earth touch. And the temple has all this uh, artistry and all this architecture that harkens back to that. And we'll look at that in just a moment. And, and it's reminding them, look, sin brought this big distance between us and God. Sin brought in this contamination. We're, we're, we're dirty. We, we, we need to be washed. And in this fallen world of dirt and blood and rebellion, we're constantly being soiled. And so we constantly need these mikvaot, these washings to remind us of our condition. You read the book of Leviticus. Hopefully this morning's lesson will really help you understand the book of Leviticus. A lot of people, when they're first trying to read through the Bible, they get in the book of Leviticus and they're like, what is going on? You can't eat this, you can't eat that, you can't wear that, you can't do that, you can't touch that, you can't, you touch a dead body and you're contaminated? Like, what if you want to kiss your grandma goodbye or touch her hand at the funeral? Now you're dirty? What's all that about? What, what, what is all this inside of Leviticus about blood and death and food? And It's all getting at teaching us our need for cleanliness and cleanliness and godliness belonging together not in the way that Wesley was getting at, but in the way that Moses is getting at and the Apostle Paul is getting at. Touching a human corpse in, in Leviticus, that makes you unclean. Why? Because it's death. And touching death brings death. Blood is a symbol of death, and touching blood contaminates you. It makes you ceremonially unclean. We have to wash the blood. The priests who are covered in blood, they have to be washed again so as to be made clean. Near the, near, the, near the altar, near the altar where they're offering sacrifice, there's the lava, the basin. So there's blood, there's washing, there's washing, there's blood, there's blood, there's washing. There's this constant contamination and cleansing that takes place. You read inside of the law, the law of Moses, it makes a big deal in Leviticus about sores and scrapes and skin disease. You know, you're like, why, why does Moses care about like acne? I mean, like, what, you know, what's going on here? Well, because those are symbols of death. Skin disease, Leviticus 11, it makes a, a person, it's a symbol of death. And, and from it comes blood. From it comes bodily fluids. And a releasing a bodily fluid in Leviticus makes you unclean. Why? Because those fluids are intended for life. Those flu, I want those fluids to stay inside of my body. Those are, those are important for life. If, if blood is just you know, just oozing out some Monty Python skit or whatever, that you gotta, you got to put some duct tape on that because that's life literally ebbing out of your body. Leviticus makes a big deal not just about blood, but also other things that come out of the body. I'll speak in code. There's kids here, but we think about sexuality. And Moses makes a big deal about stuff that comes out of the body, how that makes you unclean. Why? Because that stuff is for life. So as it comes out, if it doesn't bring life, it's a picture of death. Not just sores, but cycles. Moses talks about in the law about menstruation. Why does that make you unclean? Because that's a picture of life. That cycle is meant for purposes of fertilization and life. And when you go through, that's then a picture of death. And again, remember what I taught you, life and death aren't supposed to touch. They're not supposed to touch. And so, so when there is discharge, when there are sores, when there are these things, the law says you're, you're unclean, you're unclean, because the law is all about separating the clean and the unclean to teach us about that separation, to teach us about that distance. The food laws, why, you know, why can't you eat my favorite bacon-wrapped shrimp? Why can't you eat that? And I thank God that I'm in the new covenant, so I can take that. But, and often you'll, you'll have, you know, these days, 
You talk about sexual ethics or something, people love to go to that. You Christians, you tell people what they can't do in their bedrooms, but you eat shrimp. <laughs> like, okay, you clearly don't understand the Bible. But anyway, in its context, what's the, what was the big deal, Moses, about shrimp or some bacon? What, what's the big deal about eating these foods and not eating these foods? It's all about cleansing. It's all about godliness. I'll explain. But what's the big deal, not just about the foods themselves, but how you prepare these foods? Kashrut, kosher. What's the big deal about this? It's about life and death. Okay, so you, you read inside of Leviticus, for example, Moses makes a big deal about not cooking a baby goat in its mother's milk. W why? Because milk comes out of the body for life. You are mixing life and death together when you do that. It's to such a degree today that, you know, if you have friends of Jewish culture or whatever, dairy and meats, they don't mix. In a kosher kitchen, you keep them separately. In, 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 in fact, uh, uh, you, you can't go to a kosher restaurant and, and order a cheeseburger. You're mixing together milk and meat. You can't do that. One's a picture of life, and the other is a picture of death. And the way that God made things was so those don't touch. And the point of not mixing those together is to remind us of this distance. What they're eating, what they're wearing, how they're living, all of it is a picture to teach you. I stand unclean before this gracious God. And these rituals or graces that he has given to constantly remind me that though I feel unclean, by his grace he makes me clean. And the rituals are in intended for that. Okay, but why can't you eat the shrimp, though? <laughs> why can't you eat the shrimp? I mean, what's up, what's up with that? Well, Leviticus 11 actually specifies which animals you can eat. Uh, birds, land animals, and sea creatures. So you can read Leviticus 11. And here, let me break it down for you. Clean animals are the land animals that chew cud and have a divided hoof. Okay, so cattle, deer, goats, sheep. The seafood that you can eat are the ones that have both fins and scales. You think of blue grill, cod, etc. Uh, the birds that you can eat are the delicious chicken, doves, ducks. You can even some insects are, are cool, like grasshoppers or whatever. So Feel free to eat the grasshoppers. Those are the things that are clean. The things that are unclean, according to Leviticus 11 and the teachings of Moses, are the land animals that do not chew cud and do not have the split hoof. Pigs, dogs, cats, rats, right? Seafood that lacks either fins or scales. Think about shellfish and, and bottom eaters and what have you. So, so birds that are unclean would be carrion eaters. Those are the birds that eat flesh. Now, that's helpful, as you're saying, oh, okay, I can eat a chicken, but I can't eat a carrion eater. What's the difference? One of them eats flesh. Incidentally, all the unclean ones will eat flesh. They'll eat feces. They'll eat flesh. They'll eat dirt. The clean ones, they don't do that. The unclean ones are carnivorous. They eat flesh. Don't worry, I'm not going vegan in the pulpit. <laughs> uh, that's, that's not happening. Uh, that's not the point of it. The point is, remember, life and death don't touch. So the animals that you're allowed to eat are the ones that aren't eating death because it's teaching you something. And by refraining from eating those, you're being reminded of what God is doing and how God is washing and how God is, is bringing about these things because those contaminate you just like touching a dead body or touching blood or having an open sore that's oozing or being on the cycle or whatever. Those things are all pictures of death. They're not intended to touch. So these animals you eat, these ones you don't, and it constantly is teaching you this. Certain fabrics you don't mix together. They're separate. This is constantly teaching you this, okay? Unclean animals do what is forbidden under Mosaic law. They eat flesh with blood in it. In fact, under Mosaic law, unclean animals had, had to actually even be put to death in a clean manner. The, the blood had to be properly dealt with. The way that the priests actually sacrificed clean animals, that actually mattered. There was so, sort of a, a dignity to it, a pre-pita, if you will, where the the animals are, are dignified, and you can't just eat animals in any old way. There's something sacred about something giving its life to feed you that's teaching you something. So the priests have a proper way of doing this. If you're walking down the road and there's a dead uh, lamb, a nice juicy lamb, you can't eat it under the law. You can't eat animals that, di that just die naturally under the law because they have to lose their life in a particular ceremonial way that acknowledges I'm unclean, this thing is clean, it's giving its life for me, 
there's some kind of washing that's taking place in this ceremonially. Animals that are eaten by other animals, and maybe there's a little, you know, lamb chop left behind. You can't touch it. It's contaminated. It's dirty. All of this is teaching us separation. So when Paul writes to Titus, and he talks to him about washing, purifying, they're thinking of temple. They're thinking of food. They're thinking of their context. They're thinking of what they've been trained. They're thinking about the promises of God to Israel. They're thinking about how things were separate, what, what Adam brought. They're, they're thinking about Eden. They're thinking about Eden. They're thinking about, they're thinking about that tree of life, that mountain of the Lord, and, and how God stationed the cherubim and the fire that goes out and the, the rivers that run out there, the water, the angels, the life, the mountain. They're thinking of, of their exile that has been brought to the creation. And then in the temple, they're thinking of this new exodus that has come. And see in the imagery here, the reversal that takes place. The water's on the outside. The bronze lava, the water on the outside. The angels, the angels that guard to the presence. Here on the, on the inside, in the Holy of Holies, you have the angels that guard the presence. You have the, the tree pictured in the menorah, a tree of life. All of this imagery was intended to teach the people of Israel these things. Incidentally, if you want to read more, that graphic comes from this book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus uh, uh, that is written by Michael Morales. It's, if you want to dig in more, I'm just giving you little pieces here. So there's distance. There's clean, there's unclean. There's life, there's death. And all of that is in this imagery and nomenclature of purifying and washing. With distance, there's also time. And so inside of the law of Moses, when someone is made unclean, you'll be reading and Moses will say things like, well, if you do that, you're unclean till the evening. If you do that, you're unclean for seven days. If you do that, you're unclean for this period of time because sin brings a distance in space and in time. Eden is gone. Even now the temple is gone. Christ has come, of course, and he has made us his temple in this mediary age. And in and through the temple, Christ would, would come through the temple, minister in the temple, and teach his disciples, I am the temple that has come. The temple that will be destroyed. The temple that will be resurrected. This is not to say that in the end times there aren't future temple and these sorts of things that we could get into. But suffice it to say, all of this imagery was used in the sovereign hands of God to point the people to Christ who would come to wash them. Holy and unholy, they can't touch. Life and death. Uzzah, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, right, he touches the Ark of the Covenant. What happens to him? He dies. It's the presence of God. You are unclean. You can't touch it. You can't enter it. We read inside of 2 Samuel chapter 6 how scared the great King David was when he saw this happen. And he was reminded of his uncleanliness. He was reminded of his sin. He was, he, was, he was reminded that that ark and the holy of holies and God's holy and we're not and we can't, we, can't, we can't approach lest we be washed. David in his own sin, in Psalm 51, that great psalm, let me quote a couple of verses from it. He cries out to God, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your greatness, your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. If you don't wash me, verse 9, hide your face from my sins. I must hide. You must hide. You must be separate. You must be distant. I can't just come up on you. Oh, blot out my iniquities, Psalm 51, verse 9. Create in me, Psalm 51, verse 10. A clean heart. Create that, God. Verse 11, don't cast me from your presence. Sin brings an absence of presence. Sin brings distance. Sin brings dirt. Sin brings death. Oh, to be clean and close. Oh, to have life. David wrote this psalm, by the way. Uh, it, it is believed from tradition he wrote this psalm after the whole incident with his own sin and Nathan the prophet confronting him with Bathsheba and him just feeling dirty. David, David, it doesn't matter how many showers you take, you will never be clean for what you have done. 
you can keep on scrubbing, you can keep on washing that epidermis. It's not going to do anything to the inside. You can't shake that feeling of guilt, can you, David, for what you have done? I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Who will set me free from this? Purify me with hyssop. Create in me a clean heart. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. And in Psalm 51, he goes on after these verses that I've quoted to you in verse 14, and he talks about his blood guiltiness. Blood is on his hands. He is unclean. Yeah, you can't touch the blood. You have to be washed. And then he goes on in Psalm 51 to talk about sacrifice and the temple and offering in the temple. And he ends it in verse 19 with talk of righteous sacrifices. And I quote, young bulls will be offered on your altar, O Lord. There's temple. There's washing. So then you see the altar as you zoom in you see the altar and here is this big basin here and it's filled up with water for these priests to be cleansed before they sacrifice to to be cleansed after they sacrifice there's blood there's unclean there's water there's washing the basin was made from reflective material so that the priests as they wash they look at themselves they see themselves i am dirty i need to be made clean i i i i'm I see my sin reflected. I, I see that I'm covered in blood. I, 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 see, I see what I need. I need washing. And so in the temple, you have water and you have blood side by side. It is likely the symbolism, the very symbolism that John picks up in John chapter 19 when he records the death of Jesus. And Jesus is speared through his side. And John records in John 19 that water and blood flowed from his side. This is theological imagery of, of temple. Jesus inside of John's go gospel is said to be the temple of God who, who enfleshed himself and lived among them. Of course, this isn't just symbology. It's also historical detail, which is quite fantastic given our, our modern knowledge of the human body. Uh, uh, modern scientists and med medical practitioners will be quick to point out, reading John chapter 19, that this fits our modern data. Specifically, that when one is tortured the way that Jesus is tortured, the human body experiences what is known as hypovolemic shock, which causes fluid to build up around the sac of the heart and the lungs. This gathering of fluid in the membrane around the heart is called a pericardial effusion, and the fluid around the lungs is called a pleural effusion. And so this buildup of this water, and, 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 and as Jesus hangs lifeless on the cross, and as they say, is he dead? And that, that sadistic soldier thrusts him through with the spear. You would medically have water and blood flowing out. Before a Jew living in the first century reading about that, you would go, oh man, that's like the temple. And don't we call him the temple of God in flesh? And there we see the water and the blood. John is Jewish. He's writing to a Jewish audience. These images, these words, all of that, that's just common for them. Paul is writing in Titus, Jewish context, washing, washing. It brings up all these images. But if you're not from that culture, you don't understand it. That's why I labor to teach it, so that as we enter into the text, we can go, oh, wow, I would have just read right past that. Yeah, washing, head and shoulders, you know, <laughs> spa. No, 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 temple, blood, animals, dying. Don't eat that, eat this, dead bodies, cycles, sores, all, all of that is teaching you about your need for washing, right? In our culture, you know, I talk about whatever, purple and gold, Lakers, blue and white, Dodgers, uh, you know, I can talk about uh, uh, donkeys and elephants, and you know, oh, those are political parties. You talk about media, you know, uh, people who watch Fox, or people who watch CNN, or people who watch this, or people who root for that, or you know how Raiders fans are, you know, like, we all are from this culture, and so when I say those things, you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. you know, like, like you, you, you have a context to understand that. When Paul's writing to Titus, and he says, God has washed us, he has cleansed us. He has called us to godly living. It conjures up all of that. Now, earlier I said there were three things that this washing imagery teaches us. And I said the first one was sin, that we are dirty, uh, salvation, that, that we need to be washed. And the third thing that I left for now is sacrifice. And sacrifice teaches us that we need someone else to do it for us. We need a substitute. If, I, if I'm covered in dirt, Right? I, I, can't, I, I can't wash myself. I'm dirty. I'm already dirty. I'm just going to keep spreading the mud around. I need someone else to wash me. Someone else to, to, 
to just turn the hose on, to just wash me, to scrub me. I'm covered in dirt. I can't do it for myself. The point of the sacrifice, these clean animals that die, is to teach me that my sin has brought death and that because I'm unclean, I can't pay it. It's like when you're broke. You, you, you can't pay it. You, you don't have any money. You don't have any credit. You, you can't buy lunch. You're, you're broke. You don't even have a credit card. You could try and uh, 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 dine and run or dine and dash or whatever, but you're going to get caught. You, you have no ends. You're dirty. You need someone else who can pay it for you. And so all of this imagery then, sin, you're dirty, salvation, you need washing. Thirdly, sacrifice. You need someone else to do it for you. Now, er, er, earlier I made mention that Israel's God is the God of the living and that the pagan gods at the time, their gods die, their gods dwell around corpses and stuff and do all this unclean stuff and how the God of Israel was just so different. Uh, they, they weren't stealing religions from other religions, contrary to what skeptics might say. This was just radically different from the religions at the time, uh, at the time of Moses. And so too at the time of Christ, yeah, you have pagan gods that die and whatever and resurrect and whatever, but, but understand that that is markedly different than what is being posited by the gospel, namely that there's one God who eternally dwells in three persons. No one says anything like that. Specifically, that the one who died and is resurrected is a man. We're not claiming that God died. We're claiming that a man died, and that man happened to be one with the eternal Son who's one with the Father and Spirit. Those are entirely different claims. You see, the Son, who's one with the Father and the Spirit, took on a second nature. God has one nature, to be divine. He's a deity. He has the nature of being God. But one of the persons in the Godhead, the Son, took an additional nature upon himself. So he's fully God and he's fully man. The one who hangs on the cross, the one who dies, is the second person. So it is proper to say he is God. In fact, that, that's what our text tells us here in this passage. Look at verse uh, 13, the appearing in the glory of our great God and Savior, verse 13, Christ Jesus. We believe he's God. We believe he's man. He's the Savior. And we need both. Why do we need both? Because of the separation. Humanity has rebelled against God, the giver of life, and now humanity is faced with the taking back of life. If we are to be reconciled, we need both. We need one to represent us, so we need him to be a man. We need one who is God because a third party can't extend forgiveness. If you got beef with me or I got beef with you and we're at odds with each other and a third party walks by and says, it's cool. No, it's not cool because we, I don't even know who you are. You, got, you have nothing to do with this. See your way out of this. There's, there's, there's tension. The only way that that can be solved is between those parties. The only one who can forgive sin is God and God alone. Behold the one who is fully God and fully man. He dies as a man. He's risen up as a man so that he can be the sacrifice, that third point of the cleansing imagery and what it teaches us. That second point that you need someone, someone else to wash you, right? He's God. He is the one who has the divine prerogative to wash. The son became a man. He didn't stop being God. He took on flesh. That flesh died. That flesh is risen. That flesh he is still in to this day as our high priest in the heavens, washing, cleansing a people for himself, as what we read in this text. So then let me give you some impl implications. We, we began with an introduction to Titus. We saw the context. We, we moved to the inspired text. We read it, and I highlighted these themes of cleanliness and godliness. And then, and then I, I stepped off from the text to give you a theology of this to try and help us enter into the audience and the mind of Titus and those early readers so we go, oh, wow, this is so much more richer than maybe I would have understood if I didn't have that context. Look at the passage. What does it begin with? The grace of God. Chapter 2, verse 11 speaks of bringing salvation to all men. Now, in context here, if you look at the text, verse 2, he talks about older men. Verse 3, he talks about older women. Verse 4, he talks about young women and husbands and children. Verse 6, he talks about younger men. Verse 9, he talks about poor servants. And so, so here, as he says, he's brought salvation to all men. This isn't universal salvation, but he's talking about all in the context of all these different groups, young and old, poor and rich, with child, without child. He brings them all together. 
And then we read uh, specifically after that, verse 12 speaks of him training us. Verse 13 speaks of him being our Savior. This is particular redemption. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself to redeem us. He's been saving from all groups of people and redeeming a people unto himself. That work of salvation begins not with us, but it begins with him and his work. His work not only on the cross, but the work of the Spirit within the dead sinner to bring the sinner back to life. By way, by, by, by way here then of implications of the text, we see regeneration. Look at, look at the text, chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. We didn't have this coming. We were dirty. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. How? By the washing, it says, and regeneration. This renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes like water. Remember in the book of Genesis, how the Spirit hovers over the waters? Remember when Jesus enters the water and the Spirit comes? Behold my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Spirit comes in the waters. The Spirit is washing. The Spirit precedes that act of faith because the Spirit will regenerate the heart so as to receive, as the gospel is being proclaimed, the good news of God in Christ. They are said to be justified in this. That is the language of the text of, 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 of what we read, verse 7 of chapter 3, being justified. We've been forgiven of this. And with the justification comes this work of sanctification. And so he has all these charges of godliness. Let me tell you guys, you're discouraged, you're broken down, you're wondering what to do. I'm going to remind you of the gospel. I'm going to remind you of the one who has washed you, who's regenerated you. I'm going to remind you also, not just of your justification, but your sanctification. Positionally, you've been made clean, but practically, you need help working that out. You're having problems. There's, there's bad doctrine that creeps in. There's divides that come in. There's discouragement that comes in. There's questions that are asked. You've you got to press into the Lord with this. You've got to realize you're washing and keep on washing and keep on walking in that washing, rather. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writing to a rather dysfunctional church. He reminds them, such were some of you. He had been talking about all these crazy things in the world, and he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Let me remind you of what God has done for you. He's made you clean. In that culture where, where, where God is so far and he's up on the hill and he's in the temple and there's all this water and all this blood to approach him, it's been done. Let me remind you, it's been done. Let me remind you of, of what you need to do. So he rattles off a bunch of things in the text. He tells them to, uh, to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires, to live sensibly. That's hard in our culture, to live sensibly. Uh, the word in the Greek is sophronos. It is a word that is for moderation. We don't like moderation. We like to go all out or nothing. <laughs> you know, Self-control. To not, 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 not to, to spend everything you have, but to, but to live in moderation. To, to live righteously, he says. To live godly. The cleansing and the godliness belong together. Do good for others. A specific reminder that he gives his audience is to walk in peace and submission to the government. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities. Verse 2, to be peaceable. Well, that's a timely charge. There's a lot of frustration with the government that, that we have. A lot of Christians uh, are, are spreading a lot of heat and not a lot of light, running around starting wars instead of rescuing prisoners and being reminded of our calling, this calling that we have to humbly, to peaceably exist. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in that pastoral epistle section, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, he tells Timothy to pray for the kings, pray for those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That's what we want to do. I want to live peaceful. I want to live quiet. I don't want to butt heads with, with the band every time he does something stupid. i got other things to work on. I have my own sin to deal with. I, own, you know, I have people who are lost and, and, and people who will die apart from him. We shared this morning with you about the Andersons and a, a father who's comatose. And, I, mean, we have, I don't have time to wage war against the man. The kingdom of darkness is upon us. We'll walk in peace. We'll walk in peace. We'll pray for that. This is where we're called to go. 
So we saw our Lord in the face of the devil in the room. What was he doing? What was he doing? He wasn't tweeting about Herod. He was washing feet. He was teaching of his work. For the text gives us regeneration. It gives us a reminder. It gives us return. Chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. He's coming. Chapter 3, verse 7. We've been made heirs, heirs of the kingdom that is to come. We have been washed and we have been purified for a purpose, parousia. By water. He has washed us by his blood. The scripture also speaks of another element that washes besides water and blood. Do you know what that element is? It's fire. Fire is a symbol of God's purifying and sanctifying presence inside of scripture. In fact, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, that God is a consuming fire. In Ezekiel's inaugural encounter with God, he writes in Ezekiel 1:27, describing God that he looked like a fire enclosed all around him. The purifying fire, the presence of fire. We think about the prophet Isaiah when he stood before God in Isaiah chapter 6 in that great theophanic vision. What does he do when he sees God? He falls down and says, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I live among a people who are unclean. And I've been touched by them, so I too stand unclean. And what does the cherubim, what does the seraphim, what do the angels do? They go and from the fire of the altar grab the coal and cleanse prophet Isaiah. I mentioned that this other element is an element of cleansing because this point on your outline of return, when Christ returns, he won't be washing with water. He'll be washing with fire. And we see this in the last book of Scripture. We see the sobering reality of his return. In fact, the last washing that we read about inside of the Bible is in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, speaking of the tribulation saints. And in Revelation 22, verse 14, we read this, Blessed are those washed their robes washed, that they may have a right, Revelation twenty-two fourteen, to the tree of life, and they may go to the gates of the holy city. The tree of life is back, and he brings it through fire, and a new heavens and a new earth come. And until then, by his grace, God has given us this final point here, ritual, just as Israel had ritual. He has, he has given his church ritual. And so today I've taught you from the ancient world about sin and symbols. I've taught you about washing and the call of godliness and all this. Now, now that we've talked about it, let's do it. We've got this picture. We've got this ritual that's supposed to teach us something. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, the Lord in the night in which he was betrayed. What did he do? He took the bread. Bread. What, what would this have made them think of? The unleavened bread of the Passover? The table of showbread in the temple? And now Jesus has reenacted that. And he has said, I am that bread. I was broken for you. Give thanks. Do this in remembrance of me. Like the sacrifice of animals, the washing of water, it's just all ritual, it's just symbol. Been reminded, without this, without this, I'd be in trouble. Without this, life and death would be separated. But God the Son took on flesh and brings them together and dies for us. And so in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, and he said, this cup is the cup, the new covenant in my blood. A new covenant has come. The skeptic says, oh, you eat, you know, fried catfish. Yeah, I do. It's delicioso. I eat that fried catfish and shrimp and unclean things. I'm under a different covenant. I'm under a different promise. I've been swept into a promise that wasn't my own. I'm a foreigner, an alien. I've been brought into a new land. I've been invited to this cup, and I drink this cup, and I rejoice in the one who has cleansed me. Those rituals and those symbols, they were all pointing me to the one who has come. And since he has come, the ritual and the ceremony of that has become different. The moral commands of the law haven't changed at all, where he says, hey, don't do that, don't do this. The moral commands are always the same, but the rituals and the pictures, some of them have been fulfilled. Some of them haven't. This one hasn't. Look at the text. What does it say? As often as you eat this bread, you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When Jesus comes, we're not doing this anymore because he'll be there. Right? When, you're, when, when, 
when you, your, your family is gone and you're looking at a picture of them, oh, I miss them, right? And then when they come home, you put the picture down and you run to your family. They're, they're there until he comes. We celebrate this ritual reminded that we need washing and he has washed us by the Spirit regenerating us through the work of his sacrifice on the cross. Now there's a final ritual that we've been given. We've been given communion and we've also been given baptism. Baptism is a Christian symbolic act of ceremonial washing from sin and covenantal welcoming into the community of Christ that involves the immersing of a committed believer in water before others as a one-time act of worship and public witness. The mikvaot, getting into water and washing, that symbol John picks up and John uses that to call a people unto the Lord in preparation for the Lord. The Lord as he comes, he uses that same imagery and literally baptizes baptism to carry it on in this age in the church. So whenever there's someone who says, I've been washed of God, we say, praise God, praise Jesus. Now we undergo the ritual of washing so that we can see on the outside what God has done on the inside. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Just as this ring on my finger is a symbol of my marriage, it doesn't make me married. I, I'm wedded to my wife and so I wear this. Baptism is a symbol of that. We've talked a lot about ceremony and washing and being unclean. You know, all cultures in the world need the very things that we've been talking about. All cultures in the world need water. If you don't have water, you die. And all cultures in the world need, need mechanisms of cleansing. You, you, you'll die in the dirt if you can't be clean. You can't leave open sores out. You'll get infected. You'll die. All cultures of the world need, need to have cleansing and need to have water. And God would take that very symbol that is common to all across the earth and use that to teach us that without him we would die. Left to ourselves, we, 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 we would have nothing to drink. We would not only be parched, we would, we would die, and we would die in the dirt. Behold the one who has come. All cultures need water. All cultures need cleansing. All cultures need Jesus. Everyone in this room needs Jesus. So let's come to him. Let's pray. We're going to sing. Uh, we're going to sing two songs, and then we're going to go outside, and we're going to watch a baptism. Young Michael Woodhams has come forward. He's been chasing me around. I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. And you know the gospel? You believe the gospel? Yeah, yeah. I'm washed inside. I want to get washed on the outside. I said, praise God. We're going, to, we're going to plan it. We're going to do it. I'm going to preach about washing and teach the church about washing. And then we're going to go outside and we're going to watch someone get washed. And we're going to celebrate God. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And then we're going to go outside. And we're going to see what we have been studying before our eyes. Let's give thanks to the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your work in the heart of Michael, young Michael, for your heart for us and your work in our hearts. As David cried out, create in us a clean heart, O God. Lord, we thank you that by the work of your son, you have not only cleansed our hearts, but you have given us a new heart by your spirit and written your word into our hearts that we could live fully for you. And so, Lord, as we have been washed, as we have been cleansed, so too may we work for godliness, cleanliness and godliness together, O Lord. I pray here today that if there are any who have not been cleansed by your grace, Lord, that you would be mighty to save. Receive these songs of worship as we celebrate your work of salvation. And Lord, as we, in a few moments, gather outside to, to witness baptism, Lord, may you use these pictures to, Lord, bless and strengthen your church, to pull us together in your grace and focus us on your mission. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.